You are listening to Auckland Libraries on SoundCloud. Welcome to the Library Uncovered podcast. Today, a special conversation with rare book specialist Georgia Prince. Yorikoto ko Mark Gosper Tiene. Thanks for tuning in. In this series, I'll take you behind the scenes at Tamaki Pātaka Kōrero, the Auckland Central Library. We'll uncover a bit of the history of Auckland's public library and meet some of the people who have worked in one of the city's most popular public buildings. Georgia Prince has worked closely with the Central Library's rare books collection since the late 1970s. In this discussion, she shares some of the challenges of maintaining a heritage collection, not only preservation, but also how best to present these treasures to the public, including some famous faces. Welcome, Georgia. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me today. You've had a, a significant involvement with Auckland Libraries. Indeed. Could you talk a little bit, a little bit about, your, about your current role at the library? So introduce yourself to right. people. Um, so my current role is Principal Curator Printed Collections and I'm one of the two team leaders and senior specialists in the Heritage Collections team which was formerly Sir George Grey Special Collections and my particular role is to work as a team leader for the Printed Collections team that include people who are responsible for the book collections, the new printed music, the ephemera collection, the map collections, and the promotional programs. Uh, and um, my own speciality is the rare book collection. Um, one of the team has responsibility now for the New Zealand printed collections, so my role in terms of actual collection um, responsibility is now more closely focused on the international printed collections um, and many of them are rare books. Yeah. What are the rare books? <laughs> Good question. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the rare books are their books that have monetary value um, often because they're scarce or rare um, but sometimes they're not particularly rare, but because they're desirable and people want them, um, they're worth a lot of money. Um, it is sort of connected to age, so generally speaking, you know, the older um, a book is, the more desirable it becomes because it's a sort of survivor of history. So often the earliest books are considered um, the most valuable, doesn't always follow. Sometimes we're talking about luxury books that were made right from the beginning of their history um, as desirable objects, as expensive objects, and so they never lose their value and often go up in value. So it, it's a bit of a complex sort of definition because there is no, there's no single attribute really that makes a book a rare book because it sort of depends on people wanting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the market kind of <laughs> yeah. decides. Yeah, the market yeah. sort of decides, and it, I mean it, and it can decide um, that something that is very rare um, is um, 
unimportant and consequently not worth anything. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and we, know, I mean, theoretically, it could. Yeah. <laughs> and we talked a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit mm. about that last mm. time, didn't we? About mm. that, that being part of your role as the librarian in some ways is to um, not not just uh, well, not just, but to look after and maintain a collection, but yes. also to anticipate. Yes, the, it's the to sort add of to the collection, yeah. and consequently, y you are trying to be aware of. Um, current publishing and trends that could be um, interesting and desirable, if you like, for people in the future. It might be unusual, might be expensive even now, um, you know, right at the beginning of their creation. Um, but also the research value of, of, of these sorts of items. And again, that's almost keeping your finger on the pulse, really, as to why people find them interesting. Um, so there is a little bit of judgment, um, anticipation, uh, guesswork, um, all of those things involved in creating a collection. Because in some ways we're at an interesting point in time in terms of printed material, aren't we? Because mm. we're, we're in an increasingly digital or That's digitized right. environment although right. in some ways you know I, I noticed like like vinyl is reappearing I know <laughs> other things are, are reappearing yeah there's it, a, it's an interesting it's an interesting corollary really of the digital world is that we also have an increasing maybe an increasing fascination or certainly a lingering fascination with things that are made by hand um, and are in fact artifactual and that you can touch and feel um, and books can fit in that in that sort of category. So you know there is quite an upsurge of interest, for instance, in making artist books, um, which are handmade books created as beautiful objects. And that I think is almost it, you know the, the more digital we get, the more, almost the, the more fascination there is in creating things that are very non-digital. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Artist books, you mentioned luxury books yeah, before. Yeah, well, in a way, artist books are slightly different. I mean, they can be luxury books. But artist books are a phenomenon um, that are non-commercial publications, really. They're not produced by commercial publishers. They're produced by artisans or artists, in fact. Um, and they are... Um, small editions of books made by hand. So they're um, almost rare by definition. They're rare by definition. Uh, sometimes they're unique and in actual fact we don't purchase unique items because those are often more like sculptures than books. Often sculptures that reference books but they're not really books. Whereas we try and, and keep to an idea of a book um, for, for our collections but they can stretch the boundaries of what you might think a book is um, and they will play with the structure of a book or um, how you how you put together a text or um, how you print it, what the decorative elements of it might be. Um, and sometimes they're produced by artists and sometimes they're produced by people who like making books who start to call themselves book artists. So it's a bit of a complex area. <laughs> and the definition of what an artist book is, um, is evolving and <laughs> seems to have a variety of different definitions. Um, 
So I'm just you know, giving a, a, a rather broad description of what they might be. <laughs> yeah. Mm. In, in terms of looking at uh, historical books, yeah. do, you, <clears throat> do, you, do you see a bit of what you've just talked about, the, the development of the idea of what we've come to know of a book or the format? Well, you do, quite definitely, because the very earliest books that we have in our collections are medieval manuscripts. So they're all they're made entirely by hand. Um, and because of that, they are unique objects and they don't um, necessarily have to fulfill the conventions or they haven't, they don't fulfill the conventions of the current printed book because they didn't need to, <laughs> to, to put it in those terms. In other words, once printing was invented, um, which was around about 1450, and we start to get numbers of books that are that are printed um, using movable type and are duplicated, um, certain conventions start appearing that didn't appear in medieval manuscripts, like title pages, like page numbering, like indexes, like um, chapter headings. You know, a whole set of tools through by which we now automatically navigate our way around a book, they didn't appear in medieval manuscripts. Um, they, were, they had other form, ways of getting around a book. And one of the ways that medieval manuscripts, um, well, one of the ways you navigated your way through a medieval manuscript was by looking at initials and the size of an initial. So, yes, books have, have changed um, as the technology for making them has changed. And certain conventions have appeared um, that weren't required right at the beginning of handmade books. Mm. How do you mean looking at initials? Well, in medieval books, in medieval manuscripts, um, they are often um, sprinkled, if you like, with um, decorative initials. And those initials, generally speaking, are a different size according to where they are placed in the book. So the biggest initial is usually on the first page. And the next biggest initials are at the beginning of the chapters, and then the next biggest initials are at the beginning of the paragraphs, and then the next biggest <laughs> initials are at the beginning, <laughs> beginning of the sentences, you know. And they call it the hierarchy of decoration, and it's sort of like a visual clue. So if you are looking through the book for some particular thing you're looking for, you look for the initial size, and that and that sort of places you in the book. You know, you flip your way through, just like we do now, looking for a chapter heading or something. They'd be looking for a big initial. That's the beginning of the chapter. Right, I've found my place now. I feel that if you know how something was made, it's sort of easier to understand why it looks the way it does. Um, and and that's part of, part of the interest of these books. They're not just um, containers of content, of words, but they're actual physical objects in their own right. And they're not, we don't make books like these now, or very rarely, um, unless we're being particularly archaic in the way we're approaching things. And so you knowing how they're made um, gives you some sort of appreciation of, of why they look the way they do um, and where the similarities are and where the differences are between modern books and those books um, and what the lineage is, if you like, you know, what we inherited. Um, you, you inherited them at, at, um, at quite a different time to yeah. the, uh, of course, to to the um, 
the context today, like mm. we were saying, being more more digital, whatever. That's right. Do you? Does that make you fear more for the future of the collection? No, no, I don't think it does at all. In fact, I think, in many ways, they come into their own <laughs> in a digital world because people are fascinated by their objectness, you know, in a way that um, the contrast, I suppose, between the digital and the object is so much stronger. I, no, I don't fear for them at all, actually. They become rarer. They become rarer um, and they become, become almost more fascinating. Um, but also the digital does give you opportunities to make them accessible in different ways. And one of the issues, of course, with a collection that can't be borrowed, that can't be loaned, that can't move out of its um, storage area is that in order for people to use them, they physically have to come into one space and look at them. And if you are able to give them some digital um, assistance, if you like, of, of making copies of certain things that they might want, that both helps um, people from a distance, but also attracts people from a distance, um, which is one of the interesting things, of course, about digital copies, is they don't just, they're not just substitutes, they're often, um, they often make the originals even more attractive, because people didn't know you had them. The, yeah, is, <laughs> and is, they pull, you know, they pull pe other people in. Is that, is, is that how you would, you, you, you would see digital as something of a, of a carrot? Um, well, I think it's, I think it's both. Yeah, it can be a carrot, yeah. I mean, in terms of the sort of things I'm thinking about, for instance, um, early printed books. Our early printed books, we've got about 100 that are printed before 1500. And this is that period I was talking about where there's a transition between handwritten medieval books and books that are printed. But because they are... Um, printed, um, it doesn't mean that they lose all their handmade qualities. And so many of these very early books still have decorative initials um, which are done by hand and still have borders that are done by hand, have different bindings, have quite a lot of handmade features to them. So that people who are studying um, these manuscripts from a distance, or these books from a distance, not the manuscripts, these incunables from a distance, um, are often interested in what in what the different variations are. And, it, and so if you can do a digital copy, say, of a title page that has a, um, has a hand, um, hand decorated border and a hand decorated initial, and you can make that available as part of your catalogue record, then People in Germany, <laughs> as it were, who are researching copies of a particular book can see that online and they'll know whether it's worth their while making a trip to come and see this or whether it, you know, or whether it's not or whether there's something very interesting about this border or whether that's just like the one down the road at, at you know, Munich or something. Um, so there are ways in which you assist research by making that available, but there are also ways in which you attract visitors to your collection. Yeah. Um, because they then know whether it's worth their while. Um, and, you know, things like 
the way um, people write all over books, which we often deplore um, in a public library as vandalism. Um, in the past, if people wrote all over their books, now there's a whole industry of um, researchers. I suppose it depends <laughs> who's doing the writing. It does, yeah. partly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, some famous person writes all over the side of a book, um, you know, you've got people flocking to, to visit that collection to look at this particular book. Yeah, that's uh, right. You mentioned yeah. um, uh, David Longy yeah. coming to open an yeah. exhibition. That's right. Did you meet him? Yes, yes, I did meet him. Do you have memories of him? Yeah, well, I do have memories of him. I also have memories of his wife who was there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And they spent quite a lot of time sparring with each other all through, all through the, all through the uh, event. Um, and yeah, he was he was quite newly um, n newly appointed as the leader of the opposition. Um, and I mean, I'm imagining that that's why he was able to come to a to a um, yeah a library opening. Um, yeah, I remember him as, as as witty as everybody always says. Really, um, he was very witty. Um, but um, again, at openings, you know, we have had politicians at different times to library openings. Um, I mean, we had Helen Clark here when we launched the um, Library Treasures book a few years ago, mm. our real gold <coughs> book, um, and that's not that long ago. Mm. Um, and I remember um, it was my job to, uh, what's the word, escort her um, around the exhibition and point things out of interest. Okay. <laughs> Which is always a little bit testing, um, and you're not quite sure what people are going to like. <laughs> oh, right, because she was minister for. Uh, well, she was she was prime minister and the minister for arts and culture exactly, yeah, and right. so that it was in that role um, that she that she came to the opening of the exhibition, which was the exhibition was the exhibition of the book, if you see. The treasures of the library really is what the exhibition was. She had mm. quite particular sort of tastes. Um, well, I th I'm just trying to remember what she did. I don't remember it being particular taste. It was just trying to show things that I thought she would be interested in or latch on to things, you know, whether to explain things or whether mm. to leave people to just look and yeah. express, express their opinions. I mean, that's always the case with showing people treasures. Um, you don't really know what they're going to respond to. Um, I mean, we're all different, aren't we? Because you talked, you used the word intimidation before. Did I? Mm. Yeah. Oh, yes, and I that, did. And that came up um, when I was uh, talking, doing another interview in terms of people coming into this library mm. and more, more before now when it was, it was more divided up and there were, there were more departments. Mm. And, and especially, I, I, I get the impression when mm. it came to the rare books, Mm. You know, there was a reluctance. For yeah, well, I mean, we do often have people, um, what's the word, being unsure whether they're allowed in or not. Um, and I know that is that is a tricky um, that is a tricky thing when we have environmental controls, which we, means we need to keep the doors shut. And you talked about the... And I talked about the blue carpet. The blue carpet, know, yeah, the original rare books room I did, here. and the blue carpet, going up the stairs to the blue carpet, people hovering on the edge of the of the door saying, can I come in? Because it looked like a sort of boardroom, um, you know, and it looked as if your average person wasn't allowed in. And it was uh, and it was created as a sort of treasure room. You know, I think that was the idea, that it would, um, 
that it would make people feel that these were the treasures. So it was sort of respecting the collection. But sometimes that has the opposite effect because it doesn't look very inviting to the people. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think the idea was, you know, these are our important collections. So, you know, we've got to make sure that they look good. And they look good, we'll signal that by the beauty of our blue carpet and the... Um, I liked the blue carpet. I know other people said they didn't, but I did quite like it. Yeah. Um, the beauty of the blue <clears throat> carpet and the, um, you know, the night, the, the well-designed room with the, um, you know, the wooden cases and 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 the books um, presented in the cases and so on. Um, so there's always a balancing act between the sort of security we have to um, impose, if you like and the fact that we want to be welcoming. How representative <clears throat> of the Auckland public are the collections of the Auckland Public Library? Are you talking about the special collections or the or the or the whole all the collections? Um, yeah, well, <coughs> let's look at the special collections. Well, the special collections reflect the times in which they've been made. Um, and so they um, and also the, the ones, of course, I'm responsible for are largely the international book collections, which um, are not the New Zealand printed collections, and they're not the collections created in New Zealand, and they're not the manuscript and archive collections, um, which we also collect. So, for instance, currently, you know, we'll be collecting um, material relating to sort of social action groups, if you like. So we've got archives from Greenpeace, we've got archives from Accord, we've got archives from um, New Zealand Women's Centre, you know, I mean, th there are there are um, collections that are produced, if you like, are products of the Auckland community um, that we serve. Books obviously have to be printed. <laughs> um, and I think our collections are sort of lag behind, if you like, the um, makeup of the communities that we serve. Um, and I think that is not uncommon for heritage institutions mm. because on the whole you tend not to, you can try and be up to date with your collecting, but mostly, you know, often we are receivers of donations. So, you know, we're not, we often don't have the luxury of being proactive in the way we can get collections. Mm. So we are um, the beneficiaries of people giving us things. And on the whole, people don't tend to give you things that relate to themselves. They tend to give you things that relate to their parents or their grandparents. Um, you know, there comes a certain point in people's lives when they're looking at, well, so I'm talking about, I suppose I'm talking mostly about um, archives or letters or something, um, but it can be books as well. You tend not to give away the products of your own life. <laughs> you give away <laughs> products of your parents' lives or your grandparents, and you suddenly start to feel that they're um, that looking after them is becoming difficult in some way. Mm. You know, you're worried that something might happen to them. You haven't. You, you're not sure that after you go, that your children are going to care about them. You don't know what's going to happen if your house, you know, you haven't got anywhere safe to keep them in the house. Mm. Um, in the same way that organisations tend to give you their products of their work, 
when when they no longer need them as current <laughs> records, you know. Um, so I think there's a lag. I suppose that that's my very short um, short. Uh, description of what I think in terms of the way we reflect the community. I was thinking before <coughs> a little bit about as I've been doing this about how the how exactly um, the role or the nature of the library has changed, and in some ways I I think it's changed less than I might have thought, <laughs> and in, and in some ways I it's I feel a lot of what has changed. Is, is not the essence of what the library no. or the librarian does. It's no. it's the way we do it. It's yeah. the way it's the way people access the information. That's right. And how we help them access That's right. it. You know, That's right. Exactly. Sort of, yeah. I mean, you know, I I feel that well, in our special collections area, which is the bit obviously that I'm responsible for. I mean, we're around um, documentary heritage, so we're around um, the the uh, we. We're what they call, you know, the cultural memory. You know how that there's those descriptions about being the, a memory institution, where you hold the memory of the community, um, and we, I think, are that for a part of our, you know, of Auckland, and and it's a very broad cultural um, range. Um, Auckland's a very international city. Um, and New Zealanders are very um, global, you know, in their thinking and all the things that influence them and and all our um, cultural baggage, if you like. And we are um, one of the holders of, of, of that cultural baggage. <laughs> um, and, and, and we're not just holders of it, but, but we're um, preservers of it. <laughs> You know, and we want to preserve it so that in the future um, people will still be able to um, access that cultural baggage um, in all its glory. Um, and I do like that idea of it of them being of it being um, a sort of cultural memory. Um, so, without the library, um, are we in a in a state of sort of Alzheimer's or something? Is this this, yes, yeah. I think we are. Yeah. Mm. I think we are. And what does that mean, do you think, for a society? Well, I think it's a. I think you just are a poorer society. You don't. Um, you don't have access to your past, um, and that makes your present less rich. I feel. Um, I know that for some people it's possibly not as um, painful as others, but for, for a lot of people, I think it is. It means you're floating in a in a vacuum, really. Um, and I, you know, I'm not. I wouldn't go down the path of saying, you know, you want to learn the lessons of the past because I don't think it's that pragmatic or that straightforward, really. I mean, people will repeat whatever they want to repeat. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it either. Um, but I do think that it's a way of of gaining perspective on 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 the decisions that you make in some way or other, um, and in terms of your um, sort of artistic and um, linguistic life. Um, you know, there are whole influences that you're um, missing out on, really. Um, yeah, I love that phrase, cultural memory. Yeah, I like it too, but it's again, it's not mine. <laughs> but I'm allowed to repeat it. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it kind of leads me to the thought that the, the library is an in 
can be an important part of a um, of a collective conversation. It is, yeah. It well, is. What what do you think is this is the state of the public? It sounds like a broad term, but the public conversation in New Zealand at the moment, in terms of I, I guess informed debate. I mean, I feel like a library has a role in that. Where do you think we're at in terms of uh, when you when you when you're talking about the public conversation? What do you what are you thinking exactly? Um, I th I suppose like. Like if, if we use that term cultural, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly traversing issues of the relevance of the treaty, yeah. of, of balancing the diversities in Auckland. Yeah. <clears throat> how, how do you think we're managing that at the moment or compared to how you've seen it perhaps? Um, well, I th I think um, we're much more aware of our New Zealand. We're, we're, much, more, we're much prouder of our New Zealand um, history of the history that we generate ourselves. You know, I mean, people always used to talk about that thing called colonial cringe, you know, where everybody used to feel somehow or other that it was so much better overseas. I mean, we still do suffer a little bit from it, I think, when we look around for, um, you know, senior managers to come in from Australia or something to manage some of our institutions. I feel that's cultural cringe. Um, but in terms of the way we um, are proud of our our music and our art and our literature and our history. I think we have come a long way in my lifetime um, so that New Zealand, um, so that it's perfectly possible to talk about a, 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 a New Zealand rare book. Whereas when I first started um, in the library here in, the, in Auckland Public Library as it then was, um, the rare book room was for the international collections. And while the New Zealand rare books were housed in good storage area, they were accessed through the New Zealand and Pacific Reference Department. And they weren't really treated like rare books. They were treated like containers of factual information. Um, yeah, it's part of it just time. We're, we're at enough well, distance now. Well, I think it is partly time. Um, I think it is partly time, but but it's also a change in the educational um, curriculum, and the, um, so that there's a bit there's the the way we are we are taught at school has changed. Um, there's more emphasis on New Zealand history. Um, it's not to say that um, that people, or, you know, everybody everybody agrees or feels or knows the same as everybody else, but I do think it's. Um, Indeed, I think there was a moment there where we were, we were almost at risk of switching com around completely and only being interested in our own history and um, feeling rather dismissive of our international cultural heritage. Mm. Um, you know, because we, <coughs> we, we felt that our um, own history had been neglected, you know, and that that's what we should be concentrating on. Mm. Um, and I don't think that I think that I think we've reached a sort of bit more maturity now. So I don't think that is so much an argument as it was at one point. I mean, there was a moment I'm sure you you recall you you've heard of it, you know, a number of years ago where Treasury um, sort of queried why there was a Milton collection at Alexander Turnbull Library because Milton wasn't a New Zealander, you know, and. So arguments in favour of international collections in national institutions, you know, had to be marshalled in order to argue against this idea of 
you know, a very parochial view of what New Zealand history was. Mm. Um, and I, I think that was a sort of reaction to the way it had been ignored. <laughs> and then it, there was a sort of renaissance of interest in our own history. Um, but it almost, you know, ran a bit far and we had to sort of drag it back a bit so that um, I don't think we're now quite as, you know, myopic as just sort of looking at our own navel, you know what I mean? We've got a little bit more maturity around the, our place in the world. Join me in the next episode where we'll take a trip down to the Central Library basement.